If I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. So put yourself in the right room and then shut up and listen. Take notes to where your resources are that are in that room and then utilize those resources. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will help you escape the Wall Street casino and build wealth on Main Street by investing in real estate. I'm your host, Taylor Lotes, and today our guest is John Manus. John is a veteran of the self-storage industry. He got into the self-storage industry in 2005, and has since scaled a pretty significant portfolio of self-storage properties. Today, we're going through how the self-storage industry has changed over the years, how investor demand has grown and impacted the self-storage investing space, how technology has impacted the space, the right and wrong moves in his estimation that many investors are making in self-storage, the things that he looks for in a deal, how he prepares a deal to be sold to a REIT, what a REIT looks for when they buy a self-storage property, and so much more. Really getting a great picture for the changing self-storage investment world over the years. So much knowledge, you're going to learn a ton. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, and I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us on a future deal, just go to investwithtaylor.com, fill out the form, schedule a call, and I will look forward to speaking with you soon. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Once again, our guest today is John Manus. We're learning so much about the changing world of self-storage investing today. Let's go. John, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm excited to talk self-storage as always. For our listeners out there who don't know about you and your background, can you tell us about yourself and how you got started in self-storage back in 2005? Oh, it's John Manus, Pinnacle Storage Properties. We're located in Katy, Texas. I've been in the industry. This is my 18th year. I started with one of the publicly traded REITs as a district manager. Did well enough that they promoted me to regional vice president. And as a reward, moved me to Buffalo, New York. So, yep, <laughs> that's debatable. <laughs> So from there, I landed a COO's job of a regional player here in Houston. Spent like five years with the REIT, five years with the regional player, and now I've been out on my own for about six years. I'm working on my 42nd property right now. We've done over $200 million worth of self-storage in a six-year time frame. I've raised about $46 million of private equity. We're a syndicator, so we syndicate deals. We buy the undermanaged, underenhanced, underexpanded self-storage properties, we, or what you know as value add or mom and pa. We clean them up, fix them up, make them pretty, raise the rents, and then sell them for a profit. Great, I love it. So, in your time in the industry, it seems to me pretty likely that things have changed quite a lot, and I'm sure there's plenty that we can go through. One of the big things that sticks out to me is that investor demand seems to have grown considerably even within the last couple of years. But compared to 2005, I'm sure it's completely different. What's your perspective on that? Is there a, too big of a rush into self-storage or would you say not? I think the biggest thing is too many people getting into the industry that don't know what they're doing. So like particularly operationally, and I my background's in operations, which has then turned into 
finance and acquisitions and things like that. So that I think the biggest thing is attaching yourself to a solid operator and not just going out and doing the deals like the Wall Street kind of deals that spin off a three, five, eight percent return on investment. A lot of those VC guys or big money guys like Wall Street will go out and hire a third party management company and it's not as it's not as good as somebody that you attach yourself to that really knows how to do it and compete with the REITs or the big money players. So so there is a mad rush of equity to our industry and it has been for quite some time. I would probably say 10, 12 years, it just keeps getting more and more. And I think simply it's because we're not recession proof, but we're pretty recession resistant. They're not big deals. Your average deal is between two and $15 million. And these big money guys want $100 million deals and stuff. So when you look at it from that standpoint, a lot of equity has stayed away from this industry because they can't place enough big money fast enough, right? But if you're attached to somebody like myself, which is, there's only about 15 of us in the industry that what I call the middle traders, where we buy the mom and pop, run them like the reeds and then sell them to the reeds. When you attach yourself to that, your returns are a lot better. So, but we just like, people like us just don't buy anything. And I think there's this mad rush of equity into our industry that are paying stupid prices for things just to get into the industry. And then you're going to see a lot of capital calls here in, in the next year to three years. So that's daunting. So oftentimes when people talk about the rush of demand, investor demand, one of the things that comes up is some cities being just overbuilt an oversupply in some areas. What's your perspective on that? Sounds like you're buying just existing facilities. You're not developing new, but do you see a big rash of overbuilt cities or is that just a buzz phrase? I watched a year and a half ago or so, I watched the CEO of CubeSmart speak at the Chicago conference. And he said something that really resonated with me as far as developers go. Have you ever talked to a developer that their deal wasn't the best deal out there? And I was like, I don't think so. Oh my God, <laughs> that's all of them, right? So, and then when you talk to them, they're like, well, this market's 100% occupied, blah, 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 blah. So I think a lot of developers out there have this pie in the sky type of thing. Like we, we do some third-party management. So we coach people on what their performance look like, things like that. And what I've found is they underestimate their construction costs. They underestimate their expenses. They overestimate their lease up time. So like 12 months to build it. Well, how long does it take to lease up after that? And where's your break even point? Well, it takes probably 12 months to 12 months for permitting, 12 months to build. So you're 24 months into it. And then you're another two to three years on lease up. And that's in a market that may or may not be oversaturated. So when you look at it from that standpoint, I think I've seen a lot of developers, if you're in it for a, 10, 15, 20 year hold, okay, you'll make some money out of it. But if you're in it for a lease up quick flip like was 15 years ago, I mean, those, that's where I think the oversaturation comes in. I think a lot of times what you're doing is you're stealing demand when you build that. You're not, there's not additional demand there. So when you start stealing demand, you lengthen the time frame 
of what your lease up looks like. And I think that's where new big money, we'll call it stupid money, gets into our industry and they overestimate it. Is there markets that are oversaturated? Sure. But storage is a three to five mile radius investment anyway. So you really got to look at what that market looks like. Now, I've been in markets with 8,000 people and crushed it because I was the number one operator in the market and I ran it as a class A facility. And I've been in markets that have 18 square foot per capita and still crushed it. <laughs> so, because I buy existing, like you said, but if I buy it right, if I'm not overpaying for it, then I can not only make the numbers work, but make some money at it. Where if you're building, you're contending with whatever the existing demand is. And you can't create additional demand in storage. Okay. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You also mentioned that you're buying facilities, fixing them up, and adding value, so on, and then selling them to the REITs. What does that take to reposition a facility such that a, a REIT would be interested in it? And I ask that because it seems like, well, if it wasn't big enough in the first place, then what are you doing to make it work for them on the back end? How does that strategy work? So a lot of the, what I'll call big money players are trying to preserve wealth versus compound money. So I've talked to a lot of big money players through the years. And what you find from them is the Warren Buffett strategy is rule number one, you don't lose money. And if rule number two is you refer to rule number one, right? So their goal is to preserve that and make a little bit of money. And if you look at the REITs, what do they give? A three or 5% dividend every single year? So they're borrowing money at three to 5% from investors. So when it comes to those kind of things, I think for me, what I go in, I do, I always say new office remodel, new gate, new cameras, new lights, new HVAC units, like all of that kind of stuff and new paint uh, and you clean it up, fix it up. Well, now you can charge more. It's what Starbucks did to the coffee industry years ago is they stepped in and gave you a premium product. Well, if you have a subpar product that hasn't had any capital improvements for 15 years, it can be 50,000 square foot with no capital improvements. I go in and do all the capital improvements and I add 150, $200,000 worth of capital improvements to a property. Well, now I can raise the rents by 15, 20%. And you know how cap rates work. If I add $10,000 worth of, worth of income to a property in one given month, Multiply that by 12, divided by a six cap, and you've added $2 million worth of value to a property. Well, that's how I give my investor a return. Well, then the REITs just buy the cash flow. Well, now the cash flow is higher than what it was a year ago by $10,000 a month. So they're, they don't want to go in and do the work of a new office remodel, a new, like they want it. They're just buying the cash flow is really what they're trying to do. So if they can get their numbers to work on that cash flow to give a three to 5%, return on investment, then they buy it. Okay. So you also mentioned earlier about regarding other operators, capital calls on the way, potentially asterisks on that. We're going to couch that a little bit, but interest rates are much higher than probably anybody really expected. They've risen a lot faster than a lot of folks did and risen faster than a lot of business models were built around. Are you seeing distress in the self-storage space? We hear about that a lot in terms of office and a little bit in terms of retail, but self-storage is, people say it's insulated. Are you seeing that or do you see distress kind of behind the curtain? 
Now, historically, self-storage has had about a 2% foreclosure rate, and most of them were built wrong. They weren't just operated wrong. Like, the good news about storage is you can go in and operate them with mediocrity and still make money. I mean, if I can do it, shit, anybody can, right? So when you look at it from that standpoint, I don't think you're going to see a bunch of foreclosures in our industry. I think you will see people selling properties for not what they thought they would sell them for. So like when I underwrite a cap rate that's higher on my exit than on my entrance, and most people don't do that, they underwrite their cap rate on exit similar to what they're buying at. And you can't sustain that with interest rates going up in a market that interest rates are going up. But what I think you're going to see is longer hold times. And I think what you're going to see is some liquidity being absorbed through capital calls and things like that. So, but I still think, I mean, if, if you think about it, so you change your exit from a five-year exit to a 10-year exit, you add an extra $100,000 to the deal to get it to cash flow even. You hold it for another five years and you play the next cycle. Will you make money? Sure. You just have to wait longer for it. And it might not be, like if you're projecting 18% IRRs, it might be 12s and 14s and you got to wait 10 years for it instead of five. And that can be a, a painful wait when you thought you're going to be out in five and you're out in 10. Is that your five and years? Again, the big money's getting in and, and little money too, because I, I deal with the 50000 $100,000, $200,000 investor all the time. And they get this shiny object syndrome thing where they're like, oh my God, storage is a great investment. I got to get in. I'm going to double my money in three years. And, let, and you go, whoa, slow down, right? So I think if the audience listens to that and has patience with it, you'll make money. You just got to know when the right time to capitalize on that is and not get greedy and try to exit too soon or what have you. Or what I'm saying is price is not going down in our industry, and which is absurd because interest rates have gone up 300 basis points, <laughs> and but prices are still the same. So seller expectation also has to change in order to make your numbers work. So from your position, if you, for any of the properties that you're holding, have, as a, if you're considering selling any of those properties, have your expectations changed or have you said, well, I'm just not going to sell? Well, so I had an exit to one of the REITs September of 2019 and I sold 14 properties to them for a pretty big chunk of money. And it's better to be lucky than smart. Because September of 21 was right at the peak of the market. And I'd have never been able to guess that. So for me, it's a matter of just reloading now. So we sold those properties, bought another property like two weeks later. Fast forward a year and a half now, we're up to 19 properties. We close next week on our 19th property. So for me, it's not, my properties aren't seasoned yet to be able to sell. So, but I'm still underwriting very structured and very rigidly. I don't change the way I underwrite. I don't buy anything. I look at 300 deals a year and buy four or five. So I, I know when an opportunity is. Like I, I bought a couple properties in, in a town outside of Houston here. I bought two working on my third. 
I paid $22 a square foot for one, $23 a square foot for another. I've got about $40 a square foot into both of them. One is about 30,000 square foot. One's about 25,000 square foot. I'm working on a, another property right now in the same town that is 17,000 square foot. And I'll be able to sell them for $75 a square foot. So can you make money like that? Sure. I mean, they're class C properties. I mean, there's not a lot of pride in ownership, but if you're buying at 25s and having 40s into them and sell them for 60s or 80s on a 30,000 square foot property, you can make a million and a half dollars. So my point to that is you got to buy it right and you can't be greedy and you can't overpay for a property. So I'm not going to go out and just buy anything. Okay. Okay. Remaining patient. And just to rewind a little bit, you had, I think it was a mis misspeak, but you said you sold in September of 2019. 20, you meant September, 2021. 20, 2021. Correct. Okay. 2020. So I sold September 19th of okay. 2021. So. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Like to, like to clarify that. Yeah. So that makes sense. So you've also, I want to make sure we leave time to talk about this. You've also written a book about investing in self-storage, and they say that one of the best ways to learn is to teach something. So what are some things that you learned about the self-storage business from yourself as you wrote the book and went through that whole process? I'm sure it was quite a lot of work. I learned a lot of stuff by accident, that's for sure. <laughs> and like most of my ideas are stolen, so that's pretty easy. So that's why I wrote a book. So this is the book. It's called The Working Class Guide to Building Wealth with Self-Storage. I'm just a blue-collar dude that never went to college, barely graduated high school. The, it's a true rags to riches. Grew up poor, went trash picking every Wednesday night with my mom to try to find some good gems in the trash and stuff like that because we didn't have any money. Like, so the things I learned by accident is this is what I've been talking about recently a lot is Put yourself in the right room. I always say that if I'm the smartest person in the room, I'm in the wrong room. So put yourself in the right room and then shut up and listen. Take notes to where your resources are that are in that room and then utilize those resources. But what most people do is utilize those resources and not add value. The third step is you have to add value, period. And then once you put yourself in the right room, find your resources, and then add value to those resources. Then you look for the opportunity on how you can get in the middle of the money stream. And that's how you, that's how you do real estate. So what I learned by accident is I had lined up a bunch of resources before I left the last company that I worked for, and I didn't know it. And I, so what I didn't tell your listeners is I got fired from the REIT and I got fired from the regional player, both. Wow. So... And it's because I always want more. Like I'm not content with where I'm at all the time. So because of that's intimidating to some people and end up getting fired for some of that stuff. But when I got fired, I called my brother the next day and I said, hey, I got fired yesterday. And my brother, Joe, didn't do what most brothers did where they'd be like, so what are you going to do? Is there anything I can help you with? They didn't say any of that. He said, congratulations. And I said, what? He said, congratulations, this is the biggest opportunity of your life. You have all the resources lined up. What are you waiting for? I said, what am I waiting for? He said, well, nothing. Go do it. 
And that was the kick in the ass that I needed because that made me realize that I had lined up a bunch of those resources because I was in the right room for a long period of time. So I took an erasable board that day and mapped out all my resources. I mapped out lawyer, CPA, site link, like operating software. Like I, I mapped out everything on this list. I put operating software and then put quick stores, site link, Sentinel. Like I listed all my resources out and I looked at it and I was like, well, I'm missing maybe 10 of them or so, but here goes everything. So I started putting myself in the right room. So honestly, the lesson that I learned is I said yes to everything. Anything and everything that I could help somebody with and have a servant's mentality, I said yes to. Public speaking, teaching what I knew, didn't matter. Partnerships, I said yes to everything. And then learned what I didn't like out of some of those things and worked my way through it. Like you reaching out to me of us not knowing each other, what did I say for the podcast? Yes. I said, yeah, like, I have no idea what this will bring, but what I do know is that I'm going to get on here and have fun. I'm going to goof off, things like that. And, and something comes out of it. I don't know. Like, there's a relationship there to be had. So am I in the right room? Sure. So I learned by accident, put yourself in the right room, gather your resources, add value to that room, have a servant's mentality. Don't make it about money and yourself. The money will come. Just go help people. And then watch for the opportunity and put yourself in the opportunity and add value to that opportunity and the money will come even faster. Wow. I love that. Well, I'm glad you said yes to join us today. And <laughs> exactly like you recommended, you've added a ton of value to both myself and I'm certain you've added value to our listeners as well. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. Are you looking for a way to easily track your rental property finances? Check out Stessa. Stessa makes managing real estate investments simple. You can easily keep track of the performance, finances, and the paper trail of your rental properties. Our listeners can get started for free and then upgrade at any time to unlock their more advanced tools. And the even better news is that the upgrade is very affordable and will not break your bank. Smart investors know that tracking the numbers, tracking the money, tracking the finances is what really drives your success. Check out Stessa. It'll make your property finances easier. Just go to escapingwallstreet.com, scroll down to the Stessa logo, and get started for free. Now back to the show. All right, John, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Yes. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? This jacket, $250 jacket. So for those of you that are listening, Google John Maynard self-storage and go to images and you'll see this beautiful jacket. It was $250 and it's opened more conversations than I can ever possibly imagine because I go to conferences, investor conferences, I go to self-storage conferences and all these black and gray and navy suit guys come up and go, that's an amazing jacket. And I go, thank you. What do you do? And instantly I find my resources because they come to me. I don't go to them to find my resources. So the best investment I've literally ever done is a $250 ugly ass jacket that everybody loves. <laughs> 
Well, until you said ugly, I was going to say you have the personality to go along with it. Not the ugly part, but the... But I go with that, too. I always say I'm the face of our company, and it's not a pretty face either. No, you're friendly, you're out there, and when someone walks up to me and makes a comment about the jacket, you're open to that conversation. You're going to see where it goes, so I, I love it. We had the best investment. Now we go to the other side of that coin, the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? I've done some conferences that haven't paid off. I've done some meetings that haven't paid off. But like as far as a storage investment goes, the worst one that I've ever done got a 11.97% return on investment when we were projecting 21s or 22s. It was tough market one of the booming markets that everybody's moving to and all that kind of stuff. And it was, we didn't do a great job on our underwriting. So right out of the gate, we didn't hit our numbers. And then there was some commercial retail also along with the storage. So it was kind of a mixed use property. And like five of the commercial tenants moved out all within like five or six months. So we dropped from $30,000 a month to $19,000 a month, which hit cash flow, obviously. So we had to get them back released. So the worst one I ever did was in College Station, Texas, where Texas A&M is. And you would have thought that in such a booming market that we would have done all right. I mean, we've been able to give really solid returns to our investors because of how we underwrite and buy. But that was the worst one at 11.97%. Hey, not too bad. Well, my favorite question here at the end of the show is what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? Probably being open with your investors and your banks and things like that is we have a motto that we deliver bad news fast and good news slow. So like not every deal is going to like your performa is just a swag, right? And for those of you that don't know what that is, it's a sophisticated wild ass guess is all it is and i've never hit a performa now the good news is i've outdone a bunch of them but i've never hit them so it's a guesstimate right so and when you have like we do quarterly reports and if we have a crisis where the assets going sideways we do an emergency conference call with all of our investors to tell them what's going on And like in that case of that College Station deal, we had to borrow money from an investor to take two buildings and make them climate controlled so that we can increase revenue. So we had a conference call and said, look, this isn't going as planned. We have an idea on how to fix it, but we need more money to fix it. Does anybody want to lend us money? And they did because they believed in us, but we delivered the bad news fast. And in the end, that credibility issue is probably the biggest thing that of advice that I would give anybody is do what you say what you do and when it doesn't go to plan go back and tell them don't run and hide I got I answer my phone all the time from numbers I don't know simply because it might be one of my investors so the biggest lesson I can give anybody is be credible when it doesn't work out the way you plan it go tell them John, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing all of this knowledge. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch, if they want to learn more about you up to, find the book or anything like that, where can they track you down? So I always say it's John Manus, PinnacleStorageProperties.com, John at JohnManus.com. 
210-818-1496 and come join the fun. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today to everybody out there. Thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcast. Five stars if you don't mind, you guys. I appreciate that so, so much. That helps other people learn about the show because that helps us rank higher in the Apple Podcast ecosystem. And I'm always honest with you guys, that gives me a nice little warm and fuzzy feeling because I get to see your ratings and reviews. I get to see that you're engaging with the content and you're escaping the Wall Street casino along with us. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Thanks, Taylor.